You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to be with you on this first podcast of February. We have turned the corner. January is no more. February is upon us. February is the local Native American word for we don't know what the weather is going to be like. That's what it means, and it's true. Because you can look out, like today, it's beautiful outside, except when you go outside, it's crazy cold. And uh, they say it's going to be like 50 tomorrow. So we're holding out hope, holding out hope during February, the time when you don't know when the weather is. Before we get into teaching, I want to give a quick shout out to the Chiefs. I'm assuming they're all listening. We will uh, be playing in the Super Bowl this weekend, for those of you that are sprinkled across the United States and unaware of such things. Kansas City is in the Super Bowl, our second year in a row, might I add. We won it last year. We did. Won the whole won the whole shebang. Took first place in the Super Bowl. So hopefully we will uh, do a repeat, and next week uh, we'll have a little gloating. And if uh, if I don't mention it all next week, it means because, because we lost. Because who would talk about that? Nobody. Nobody. I am uh, using the audio from Sunday morning's teaching. Uh, last week I went ahead and just retaught it, kind of podcast style, and it was so much fun. I intended on doing that this week. And by Sunday night, I was just so tired. And so did not get it done, but we do have the audio, and we will pull into that. Talked about the leadership of Jesus and how it contrasts with pretty much every leader you've ever known. Uh, we look at John chapters 9 and 10, and I kind of take a while to go around the mountain to get into them, but I, I think you'll understand why when we do. Here we go, John 9 and 10 and the leadership of Jesus. Uh, If you have your Bibles, John chapter 9 and 10. Last week felt very technical and very very, um, uh, specific. This week, uh, we're talking more about the the current life here and now. Nobody thinks of inconsistency as a virtue, I don't think. I think we like to pride ourselves on being consistent, and we like to think that we are the same people wherever we are, whether we're at work or whether we're at home. And for the most part, we try. We may be a little less formal at home with our family. We don't sign our texts, you know, hope this finds you well. Maybe you do sign your texts that way to your family and your spouse replies, I'm in the kitchen. I'm fine. What are you talking about? But we try to be the same person. We wouldn't say one thing at work and then say something different at home. That said, could we be the same people if things we were said were taken out of context, maybe a sentence here or a phrase there. At that point, whoever is arranging the text or taking things out of context is presenting the information and has as much control over the message as we do. Now, let's make this a little more difficult. Let's imagine everything in your home is being recorded. If you have a Google Home or an Alexa, probably is. How would you feel if somewhere someone was editing the audio and pulling conversations out of context and replaying them on the larger public stage? It would be easy to think, hey, hey, wait a minute. That's, that's not what I meant when I said that. I didn't, I didn't mean for that to be used that way. Today, we're going to be looking primarily at John chapter 10, but as a kind of a part of a public service announcement that I regular give in this, regularly give in the search for studying scripture, I need to restate what I say often. In scripture, often the chapter breaks come at strange places, and they leave us with a bit of a slanted view or an incomplete view because of lack of context. 
I can imagine Jesus listening to some of our sermons and some of our explanations of his words, and Jesus actually saying, well, there was more to it than that. That's not the fullness of what I meant. He is the most consistent individual who has ever lived, and because of that, context matters. Revelation 4 says, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. He is the same over time. And sometimes because of how we've divided up scripture, we pull pieces out and we only study bits and pieces when he was speaking in the grander scheme of things. Now, in places like Psalms, where each chapter is a book or a song unto itself, those chapter breaks make a lot more sense. But in places like most of the New Testament and the Gospels, those chapter breaks were inserted kind of at random so that we could find portions of scripture quickly. But in breaking up the narrative like they do, we lose the continuity of the storyline. We don't realize we're reading something that relates to something that happened in the chapter prior. And that's what happens in John John chapter nine and 10. This morning, we're gonna spend most of our time in 10, but on its own, we could receive some benefit of it, but we really lose the context if we don't dip backwards into chapter nine. Reading John 10, apart from awareness of nine, leaves our understanding of it incomplete. So just a real quick summary of what goes on in chapter 10 or in chapter nine. In John nine, Jesus comes across a man who's been born blind and the disciples are trying to sort out who's responsible for this. Did the man sin or did his parents sin? John 9, 1 through 3 says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, this is not the only time where something terrible happens, and Jesus seems to respond almost unconcerned about it. It's very similar to what he tells Mary and Martha when Lazarus dies. In John 11, just a chapter later, he says, the illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So from the beginning of chapter 9, we see these contrasting approaches of how people respond in crisis. You learn a lot from people about how they respond in crisis. The disciples want to know whose fault is this. Jesus thinks about what happens next. People with a small world view tend to ask what happened. Religious people tend to ask what happened. This man sinned. Who, or who sinned, his parents or himself? Whose fault is this? Your life is a train wreck after some years. What happened to you? You fell back into sin after years. What happened to you? You said you'd never do that again. What What happened? The reason to focus on what happened is to justify their accusation that somehow this is all your fault. Jesus doesn't ask what happened. Jesus looks and says, what's next? He explains that this man's misfortune isn't the result of sin, but it's an opportunity for the glory of God to be on display. So he sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash where he is healed. Now, just a side note here, Jesus looks at the worst episode of your life, and he's already thinking beyond that about what's next. Others may be worrying about the details or did you do that to yourself? Why did you deserve that? And Jesus is saying, let's not talk about why they deserve it. Let's talk about what's next in their life. That's never Jesus's reaction. Religious people ask what happened. Jesus asks what next. And he's 
his healing causes a great stir because his friends have only ever known him as a blind man. The scripture said he was born blind. Literally, no one has ever seen him see them. What an interesting thought. It's like, hey, it's me. It's Larry. I know you've never actually seen me before. You've only heard my voice. So the formerly blind man starts to tell his story in John 9, 8 through 11. The neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it's he. Others said, no, but it's like him, looks like him, but the other guy was blind. This guy's not blind. He kept saying, no, I'm the man. And so they said to him, how then are your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And he went and I washed and I received my sight. Now, where he went again was the pool of Siloam. You remember we talked some weeks ago that was fed by Hezekiah's tunnel from the waters of Shiloh. This is how Jesus uh, used the symbolism of God providing the man's healing. But him suddenly being healed and his answer doesn't really settle the crowd. It actually draws a bigger crowd including religious leaders who don't know the man personally. And because they didn't know him when he was blind, they don't necessarily believe the story. This is just short aside. This is why we need relationships. We need people who can look at us and see growth or see the hand of God move in our lives. Don't take specific spiritual direction from people who do not know the whole of your story. And the religious leaders question him And then they begin to think that Jesus, who healed him, is actually a sinner. And it wasn't because he had gone against Scripture. They called Jesus a sinner because he didn't obey man-made traditions over what could be done and what could not be done. When you begin to think that your own rules are equal to Scripture, and when people don't follow your rules, though they're sinning, you have problems. They're not the last group who would confuse their preferences with God's laws. Someone with a religious spirit has very little capacity for disagreement or people doing things any other way than their way. They can't even sit in a room with people who they think are wrong. I I honestly think it is a gift and a blessing to be able to tolerate people who are wrong or who you think are wrong. Not abusive to you, but actually wrong. Jesus spent a lot of time with people who were wrong. He ate in their homes. He attended parties with them. Religious people have no capacity for people who they think are wrong. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm not religious. I'm just very, very black and white. Really? You're more black and white than Jesus when it comes to how you can handle other people's opinions. I think Jesus had a handle on right and wrong. You're not black and white. You just don't have the capacity to be with someone who you think thinks differently. I'm so glad Jesus does. But back to these religious people, Jesus didn't fit their mold, so they decided what he was doing was sin. There are people so committed to their way of doing things that even to dare to think differently than them puts you in the category of sin. And the blind man, the formerly blind man, answers with sarcasm. He says, well, do you guys, sounds like maybe you want to be healed too. And the long story short is they threw him out of the temple. Now, we, we gloss over this for a second, but think about this. Religious leaders threw him out of the temple. What a day. You wake up blind and in the club, and you go to bed that night with perfect vision, having been thrown out of the club. At that point, do you care about the club at all? No. 
You care about who gave you sight. It's not like he went home and his wife said, how was your day? And he's like, well, you know, up and down, you know, good things, bad things. It was, it was a day, got my sight, got thrown out of it. No, no, his story of that day that he tells is of healing. It's not of being excommunicated from the temple. And so Jesus hears about this and he goes and he finds him and he asks the man, do you believe in me? And the man born blind, who can now see, who's been thrown out of the temple by religious leaders, professes faith in Christ. Now, understand, he's experienced real trauma at this point. Like, he, he's been thrown out of his own synagogue. We often think that people who have been hurt by religious leaders are closed to Jesus. If they've suffered rejection at the heart of, of uh, other influential people that they don't want to be open to Jesus, actually, they're very open to the heart of Jesus if they see the actual heart of Jesus. And in John 9, 39 to 41, Jesus told him, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. It's like, I came to this world for people like you. And for those who see may become blind. So some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were born blind, you would have no guilt about what you say. We'll see. Your guilt remains. He says, you guys have to live with what you've done to this guy. Yes, you have acted blind in this case. And the chapter of chapter nine ends there. And everything in the text and in the scholarship indicates that the events of chapter 10 happen immediately after this. Chapter 10 is not act two of the play. It's a part of the same act. In fact, it's a part of the same scene. It's in this tense moment between the Pharisees and the man who was born blind that Jesus starts to speak about himself. And he speaks about himself to the formerly blind man, to his friends gathered there, to the disciples that are gathered there, and to the religious leaders. And Jesus is very conscious of who is listening. We assume it's just maybe Jesus and the disciples, or maybe that because the chapter changes, the scene changes, and this is another day. No, no, no. This is Jesus and the cast of characters from chapter 9. And Jesus starts out by saying, truly, truly. Some versions say, verily, verily. I had a friend from Arkansas that said when Jesus said, verily, verily, what he meant was, show enough, show enough. In other words, pay attention here. He only says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, when he is about to say something in a very strong way. It's the equivalent of your mother using your first and middle name. Okay, some of you, when I even say that, you twitch because you remember that when your first and middle name came out, it was completely different. It wasn't going to be take out the trash. It was going to be something very pointed. And Jesus uses their first and middle name or says, verily, verily, or show enough, show enough, please listen here. And in that chapter, he describes himself in two forms, describes himself as a door or an entrance point, the way to something. And he describes himself as a shepherd a combination of caregiver and a leader. And I cannot stress enough, John 10 is not a random standalone teaching. It is Jesus explaining the authority he has in people's lives and the loving care in which he leads people in contrast to the religious that were standing there having mistreated the blind man. It's a powerful thing he's saying, and it's doubly powerful in light of the blind man standing there, able to see, having just been thrown out of the synagogue, and the people who threw him out are there as well. Some of us have been hurt by leaders. Maybe a pastor that you trusted hurted you, or a leader you looked up to said something that cut. 
one of the negative ages, uh, negatives of the modern age is we can now even suffer at the hands of leaders we've never even met because we've, we've studied their teaching and suddenly something goes wrong. And I understand, and it happens. In John 10, Jesus is saying his leadership is better. And in this context, it's not only his leadership in the kingdom to come, but it's his leadership in your life right now. Last week, we focused on the age to come and how it affects this life. But what he's talking about right now is the leadership that he exerts over your life, if you will follow, day to day, starting right now in this life. And he is speaking to the blind and the broken and the religious and people who have been quarantined to the point that they're cranky with their family. He says, through the story, he tells them, this is what you can expect if you follow me today. And this is why it is better than following them, pointing to the religious leaders. That's who Jesus is speaking to when he starts the discourse in chapter 10. So I want to read an extended passage and then pull things from that in light of his interaction with the formerly blind man and the religious leaders. Turn to chapter 10. Looking at verses 1 through 16, a little longer passage than we normally read, but it, it helps us understand what he's saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, it, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought them all out on his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come to me are thieves, before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and to steal and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. He makes these over and over again. Guys, guys, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. This is his response to the blind man about being a good shepherd. And in telling him this in the hearing of the religious leaders that have just thrown him out of the temple, he tells us four pivotal things about his leadership and his partnership with us. If we don't understand these things, we're not getting the full benefit of what it means to be led by Jesus. First thing he tells them is there is great conflict and competition for the sheep. He's like, there's a battle going on about who's going to lead the sheep. He said, truly, truly, 
I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. That's not passive aggressive communication. That's actually aggressive communication towards the other leaders that are standing there. He aggressively contrasts himself with the Pharisees who were present at the moment. And he uses a language and a word picture that directly relates back to a passage they would be familiar with. The Pharisees might have been a little bit out of touch with the common man and unaware of how cruel they were at times, but they were well-versed in the words of the prophets. This is how well the Pharisees understood the word. From the time a Pharisee child, because they were, the, they were Pharisee families, and they would just pass it down from generation to generation. From the time that child was about two, they would have a copy of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they would put honey on it, and they would they would train the child to lick the honey off the Torah. So he would associate that with Psalm 119. Your word is sweeter than honey to my mouth. We have pacifiers. They would have a copy of the Torah that was sticky and they would give that to the child. The child would grow up licking the Torah as a demonstration of it being sweeter in his mouth than honey. By the time he was 12, he would have memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. Some of you don't know what your Zoom password is, okay? The idea of memorizing things, it's hard. And they would memorize Genesis through Deuteronomy. And as a teenager, they would memorize the books of the prophets and the Psalms. I say all that to explain when Jesus starts referencing this idea of thieves and robbers and a good shepherd of the sheep, they recognize this language. Because in John 10, he is referencing Ezekiel 34 too. And you can almost hear the Pharisees going, oh my word, he's going there. He's actually telling the story of Ezekiel and he's putting us in the story. Ezekiel 34, 2 says, son of man, speaks to Jesus, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? He said, you guys, are the, you are the shepherds from Ezekiel 34. Jesus relates this experience that this guy had with the prophetic word from Ezekiel, where neglectful shepherds are identified as feeding themselves, taking advantage of sheep, and even scattering the sheep. Now, that word of a shepherd had been used a long time in reference to religious leaders. It had a pastoral connotation. They were part teacher, part protector, part caretaker. And Ezekiel reiterates this and Jesus reiterates it from Ezekiel. Not all who claim to be a shepherd have the same end goal for the sheep. Some shepherds are focused on the care of the sheep and the expansion of the herd. Others are looking for a free meal, and sometimes the meal is mutton. One shepherd wants to care for the sheep. The other one wants to manipulate them. To manipulate someone is to pressure them and bend them to get an unnatural result by artificial means. And sometimes to manipulate them doesn't even mean always to openly hurt them. It can mean to flatter them, to lead them in a way that they should not go. As the clock of natural history ticks down, manipulative false shepherds will say peace, peace when there is no peace, just to get people to act the way they want them to act. Jesus is saying, you've read Ezekiel and I am not that guy. I am a true leader, and I will be that for you, but I am different from these guys. To be a people who are hung, to a people who are hungry, God promised to send a faithful shepherd. 
All through Jeremiah, that language of a faithful shepherd is used. Jeremiah 3, 15 said, I will give you shepherds, plural. But in this instance, a shepherd, Jesus, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Jeremiah 23, 4 says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge. And he reiterates it again and again. I'm going to send a shepherd. Have you ever had a week that seemed like a month long? Like you're, you're looking at your spouse middle of the week on what day is it? Sometimes our experience stretches us into accelerated growth seasons. So much gets crammed into a short period, it's hard to comprehend. There have been times where I've looked at Kelsey and said, did, did that happen today? Was that, did, that seems like forever ago. This man who Jesus is ministering to has kind of had that kind of day. He walked out of the door that morning, a blind man. He walked in that night with perfect sight, noticing things he never noticed before. He's like, hey, honey, that picture on the wall is hung crooked. It's like, well, you never mentioned it before. Well, I never noticed it before. I couldn't see till today. And also having been healed, he's been expelled from the synagogue and he's embraced this new teacher who has promised him life and then tells him to go live it abundantly. The blind man from John 9 saw a glimpse of a shepherd when he received his sight, he saw Jesus who cared for his needs and cared for his future. And he also saw an accurate picture of the religious manipulators who threw him out because he wouldn't reject the Jesus who had ministered to him. For a recently blind guy, he has seen a lot. And as he heard all of these things that Jesus said, he begins to unpack it about what it means to have a good shepherd. And Jesus used very concrete language. Jesus told him in that passage, a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He's not a hired hand. He doesn't act like he was just hired to do the job. He doesn't ab abandon him when a wolf is coming. And with that declaration, Jesus says, I am the shepherd in contrast to the shepherds that you have known. I'm not a manipulator. I am like a shepherd from Psalm 23. Jesus is what the heart of this blind man has yearned for. Not a manipulator, but a shepherd from Psalm 23, under whom there is no lack. Not a bully, but somebody who would lead him beside still waters. Somebody who would restore his soul instead of draining it and demanding, what happened to you? Why are you this way? Someone who would lead him along paths of righteousness. Jesus wasn't just giving this man his sight. He was giving him vision for what life could look like under the care of of good leadership. One of the greatest things that you can ask Jesus, and you, if you're looking for homework, you can do this. Ask him, Jesus, what could my life be like if I gave you everything? Lord, where would you take me if I vowed to go without knowing where we were going? Where would the car go if I didn't know, Lord, once I got in the car? And Jesus, having drawn a stark contrast between his leadership and the leadership of the abusive people who tried to control and manipulate the blind man and eventually threw him out of the temple, takes it a step further, and he makes a promise to the man and everyone in earshot that they could have life and they could have it abundantly and live it abundantly. And he, he lays out this second promise to them is that the good shepherd will lead the way for his sheep. He said, when the shepherd has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the shepherd follow him for they know his voice. When most of us think of a shepherd, we actually think more of the activity of a sheepdog. Ever see a sheepdog or, or the movie Babe? 
about the pig that was trained to herd sheep. You know, I, you, you have a picture for this. And they chase them. They just kind of run around and, and chase. And we think of Jesus's leadership over our life a little bit like a sheepdog. Hey, 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 don't do that. Hey, hey. It's like me taking my kids to Disneyland. Don't, don't, no, don't, don't, hey, hey, hey. And, and that's not the way the shepherd herds his sheep. A shepherd led very differently. Sheep were drawn to the shepherd by his voice, and they would follow. As the shepherd walked through town, he would lead, and the sheep would follow and tune in to what he was doing. They would follow him over a mountain. They'd follow him through a valley. They would follow him through the distractions of a city. Wherever Jesus was leading, they would follow. And he said, get to know my voice, because you're going to follow me where you hear me going. I'm not going to beat you into submission to get you where you need to be. And he goes on to tell them that I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. They might have life and have it abundantly. Think a minute. Why do people compete for, competi- uh, for leadership roles? When there are leadership roles available, why do people tussle for them? I think they're uh, in the Georgia Senate race that just finished up. The two parties spent $800 million to gain control of jobs that pay $174,000 a year, okay? Nobody runs for Senate for the economics of it. It would be cheaper not to. But people vie for leadership roles in our lives for a couple of reasons. Some people vie for a leadership role in our life to take advantage of people by by the role of leader. This was the motivation of the Pharisees. How can we better ourselves on the backs of people? I wish I could tell you there were no more Pharisees. There probably are more, though. But some people are motivated for leadership to take advantage of people. Other people are legitimately motivated to leadership to lead people where they could not or would not go by themselves. When you read the history of our nation's founding fathers, imperfect as they were, you see some sense that they felt if they did not do something that the people of this new world would never find freedom. At the time of the American Revolution, only about 30% of the people really wanted to break off from England. But good leaders rose up and they said, no, we're going to lead you for your own good where you need to go. Jesus led people where they would not go on their own. And so the term shepherd is perfect. Good shepherds lead from the front. Jesus is that kind of shepherd. He doesn't want to take advantage of you. He doesn't want to drive you. He doesn't want to punish you. He wants to call you, and he wants you to respond. He actually laments in Proverbs 1 as the voice of wisdom. He says, I called you, and you did not listen. He's like, I I lifted my voice, and you didn't come. If you want to know the heart of Jesus, learn to hear his voice. That's why it is vital. He leads us towards the ability to lead, lead life abundantly. Jesus is a leader from the front. His sheep know his voice and they follow. Other leaders, religious leaders of the day, according to Jesus, are taking advantage of people and actually stealing, killing, and destroying. What adjustments to life would we make if we really understood what was trying to steal, kill, and destroy in our lives? I think we fear the wrong things. We fear things like old age. We fear things like being forgotten or failure. Matthew 10, 28 says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but fear him who can both destroy soul and body in hell. Jesus, the perfect leader, writes a counter story about a different kind of leadership. He says, I come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. 
Now, sometimes we hear that and we think what he is saying is I'm going to give them abundant life. That's not actually what he says. That's not what he says. He says, I want to give them life and that they would have it or some versions say that they would live it abundantly. We assume that, that he gives us plenty of life because he knows no bounds. But the word abundant doesn't describe the life he gives. It describes how we are supposed to live it. Jesus cares about every part of your life. And by nature of it being important to you, it's important to him. And understanding that his life matters more than you realized and that God will supply everything that you need in order to live the life he's calling you to, you can afford to embrace it wholeheartedly and live it abundantly. The extent to which you experience life in God is largely based on your approach to living it. There are people who live with an expectation of scarcity and others who live with an expectation of plenty. Now, in the natural setting, there are times when both of those people are wrong. We realize that. All the positive thinking in the world will not help you if you have ignored your gas gauge on your car. You cannot use positive confession to get your car to go 20 miles more than it would once it's out of gas. Okay, So that's not just a matter of attitude. That's a matter of math. But living life in constant fear of scarcity will also make you into a person whose identity is worry, and you will fulfill your own fear of lack. Even when you have plenty, when God has provided you life, you will worry you do not have enough, and you will live like you do not have enough, and you will not live abundantly. I read a story this week about a woman named Sylvia Bloom. Sylvia was a secretary on Wall Street for 67 years in the same job. Think about that. Her husband was the firefighter who later became a school teacher and always worked a side job as a pharmacist to make ends meet. They lived frugally in a New York City apartment their entire life under rent control. Uh, Sylvia refused to pay for cab rides. She just felt it was too expensive. She was so convinced it was a waste of money that on September 11th, 2001, when she was told to evacuate Manhattan, she walked across the Brooklyn Bridge to catch a train. Even though cabs were available, she told her niece she just didn't want to spend the money. After a marriage centered around the fear of not enough and her husband working three jobs and her not riding a cab on September 11th, 2001, she lost her husband in 2002, and she lived another 14 years, maybe not in abject poverty, but in very meager circumstances, until she passed away in 2016 and left an unsuspecting niece $9 million. Nobody in her family knew Sylvia had a dime. And her fear of not having enough left her living in that reality of not having enough. Can you imagine her husband discovering that? He's like, wait, wait, we had, we had millions of dollars and I'm working three jobs? I didn't know we had millions of dollars. Sylvia made herself and her husband's life into the thing that she tried to avoid. Fear of not enough can do that to us. Saving is a wise thing. But saving out of fear and living in almost poverty when you don't have to live that way, you make yourself into the thing that you're afraid of. We can live life abundantly because he gives life that is more than we can imagine. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work, 
within us. It is in the realm of Jesus's leadership that we can live abundantly. That, that doesn't mean spend more than you have, but it means live life with the idea that Jesus has a plan for you and you do not have to live in fear. We will not fully know the extent of life that is available to us until our earthly life is over when we'll all realize there was more life available than we ever imagined. Third thing that Jesus wants them to know out of all of this is that the good shepherd looks for assistance from a doorkeeper. He says there in John 10, to him, or the good shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. Those of you that are trying to keep the cast of characters straight, it's a confusing story. Wait a minute, Jesus is the door and Jesus is the shepherd. Wait, wait, who's the gatekeeper? The traditional sheep pen in the time of Jesus's teaching did not have a gate like we think of when you know a gate that you can swing open or you can lock that it wasn't like that it had an opening and they would employ a gatekeeper to stand in the opening and to keep the sheep in or to welcome the gatekeeper or welcome the shepherd in the shepherd would be ushered in by the gatekeeper and the gatekeeper would keep the thieves and the robbers out now like i said jesus tells complex stories in some of his parables multiple things represent one thing and that's what happens here jesus is the shepherd and jesus is also the the door or the way other times one thing represents several things and that's the case here with the gatekeeper the one who opens the door for the shepherd to enter into the sheep or for the sheep to access the shepherd represents two things both a spiritual being and earthly beings in a spiritual sense the Holy Spirit is the gatekeeper. When people meet Jesus, the Holy Spirit was always involved. Some of you came to the Lord in very unusual circumstances, and you were conscious of the drawing of the Holy Spirit through that process. Some of you were not conscious of it until later, and you saw things that happened. You realized, oh my word, he was the gatekeeper for me to meet Jesus. I was thinking this morning, I was reminded of Shirley Pislotic's story of uh, being a young adult and not knowing the Lord and going into a Christian bookstore on 95th Street to pick up a card for somebody. And as she went in there, her eyes fell to a book, a Christian book that had been written by, I believe, one of her junior high school teachers. And when she saw that name, she recognized it and she bought the book out of curiosity. And you know, these things happen in our lives and we just think that, that life is happening around us, but it was the Holy Spirit drawing her. She would sit up at night and read this book until she realized, I want to say yes to Jesus because the Holy Spirit had drawn her. Not long after that, Glenn said, I want what you've got. And he gave his heart to the Lord. They were drawn by the gatekeeper who introduced them to Jesus. He forever gets us access to the Lord. Ephesians 2.18 says, for through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So in the spiritual sense, the Holy Spirit is a gatekeeper. In the physical sense, we are gatekeepers. We don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in the sense to draw people like he might. But in some cases, we present the way of Jesus in a way as appealing to those who do not know him, and we help them find access to him. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We represent Jesus to those who don't know him. So we can attract people to the good shepherd. But if we take liberties with our role as a gatekeeper, we can also keep them away. How many people have shied away from Jesus because of what other people did in his name? 
Never forget, we may be the one person they see before they see the shepherd. And they, in fact, may not ever see the shepherd because of what they see in us if we're not careful. I want to build a family of believers that points people to the shepherd rather than shoes them away by making it harder to access him. As much as we are the gatekeepers, we want to keep that gate wide open. Jesus tells us in other passages, the way is narrow enough already. Let's not block the road for people. Surrender to Christ is already a daunting thing for people to do. Let's not make it harder with our religious expectations or our demands on those who do not know who he is. Fourth thing that Jesus tells them is it is the shepherd's heart that the flock would grow. It's what he wants. Have you ever gone somewhere and felt when you got there, they really weren't ready for you? Or maybe they didn't want you to come at all. My oldest son, Jackson, was out with some of our younger kids last year. And uh, Jackson is kind of a magnet for strange experiences. He's just the craziest things happen to Jackson. You can never really explain it. But as he's got the kids, they need to use a restroom. And so there's no place open, but a little little uh, Chinese restaurant. So they stop at the Chinese restaurant and he thinks, well, I'll go in and I'll buy a little bowl of rice or something. So I don't want to just go in and use a restroom. But he goes in and it's quiet and it's dark. And he just keeps walking. He thinks, well, they're open, but I don't find anybody. And as they walk back towards the restroom, he finds the entire staff of the Chinese restaurant are all near the back of the seating area, laying across booths, napping. They're all ta- like they're open, but the entire staff, they were not ready to receive guests. They're all taking a nap. He said, he goes, I was horrified. I was, I thought I walked in on a crime scene at first until I realized they were all just asleep. And somebody sits up and wonders, you know, do you need anything? He's like, No, I really don't. Apparently, you're not ready for me. Have you ever visited a church and got the idea by the response that maybe they were not anticipating visitors? One of the things about the 90s that really did well was to bring attention to the church that sometimes our architecture and our language could be off-putting. Maybe poor signage didn't help as people would come to visit or insider language. And many churches made great strides to change that, made their building more welcoming. And it made almost no difference in retaining visitors because people could get by a funky building, but they couldn't get past the feeling that maybe people didn't really expect them to come or stay. It's good to have good signage. It's good to know where the bathroom is, but that sort of thing is not what turns people away. They go into businesses all the time without knowing where the bathroom is. But if they come into a building or they come into a group, they don't feel welcome. That pushes them out. And instead of being actively welcomed, sometimes we are almost actively hostile, or so it feels to people. Maybe it isn't printed on the door, but from a practical perspective, it would appear like that. It's almost like us four and no more. John 10, Jesus says to those that are gathered, I have sheep that are not of this fold. He said, guess what, guys? It's more than you four. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now there's a layered meaning here. And the principal meaning, the clearest picture is that he is telling the Jews, guess what? You're not going to be the only sheep in the barn when this all comes down. That would have been shocking to the Jews. So shocking that decades later, the apostle Paul is still representing this idea as a bit of a mental challenge. He says in Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is, in other words, I know it's kind of crazy, but the mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. He's like, guys, there's more than just us Jews that are coming into the fold. 
So most of us, if we're not of Jewish descent, find ourselves as sheep that have been sought out and brought into the fold that we were not born into. But the irony is, having gotten into the fold so quickly, been brought into the flock, we sometimes develop this sense that others are not welcome or no sense of urgency that there are others still out there. And we are just as much outsiders as they are, but we have been welcomed in. So how do we bring them in? It would be easy for us to say, well, you know, we, we need a building to do that. To expand the kingdom, we really need a place to land. And I'm the first to tell you, we need a building. We need a building for corporate worship. We need to gather, uh, to gather in one spot and pray. We need a building for a unique corporate encounter with the Lord. There's something about coming together and asking him to touch us and him doing something in a group that is really hard to do the way we're doing it. We need a building. We do not need a building to swing the gate wide open and offer Jesus's leadership to other people. That doesn't require a building. Some of you have people in mind who you are awaiting to invite to a church when we get a building. And I get that. I really get that. And I look forward to that. I look forward to them joining us. I look forward to those who listen to the audio later in the week going, okay, it's in a place. I can go there. Oftentimes we've got more listening to, uh, to the audio recording than we, we have on a Sunday morning. But the heart of the Lord for our city is not delayed by our lack of building. He says, well, you are the gatekeepers, you and the Holy Spirit. Can you welcome them to get to know me? The heart of Jesus is a shepherd and a leader to lead people so they will go places they would never go by themselves. Maybe they don't have the strength. Maybe they don't have a sense. Maybe they're blind. Sheep are funny creatures. But he has privileged you and I to stand with the Holy Spirit as a gatekeeper, inviting people to see him who may never see him.